All right, so this is week three of four of our What is the Gospel Bible class. So we're almost done. As I mentioned, I'm essentially taking that book, The Gospel, precisely and following its structure, reducing and um, kind of condensing things that he wrote where I thought maybe they could be condensed, and then adding things that I thought he overlooked or that might be helpful. And we've been able to follow him closely for the first two chapters, but now we're at a spot where I think he needed to add a whole nother chapter. So I have done that for him. Just kidding. He, he doesn't care about this. Um, but I think this might be helpful for us. Last week, we talked about why we need a royal or kingly gospel, and he, could, he goes right on to talk about the benefits of the gospel in the next chapter. I, I thought it might be helpful to re-articulate, reiterate how it is that Jesus becomes king in his earthly life and ministry and beyond, and then to talk about what the cross means, how the cross works. Um, I think those things are helpful for us as we consider the meaning of the gospel. So we'll start with the multi-stage enthronement of Jesus Christ. And again, I am just trying to reiterate that the primary identity that is drawn out in the gospels is that of kingship. So when it comes to who Jesus is, fundamentally, we see him over and over again pictured as a king. And I don't know if that's the way that most Christians think about Jesus. Do we think about him as king? Now, of course, he has multiple identities or roles that he takes on, right? Priest and prophet and philosopher and teacher, all of these things. But I think the dominant identity is king. So let's look at the way that his kingship is depicted throughout the Gospels, throughout his life. First, at his incarnation, uh, The incarnation is the first step of Jesus' enthronement as God's Messiah or Christ. It's the incarnation that allows Jesus to fulfill the promises that a descendant of David would rule forever. So the third person of the Trinity, Jesus, cannot be the Davidic Messiah outside of that Davidic piece, right? He has to be incarnate, um, take on a human lineage, and he takes on the lineage of David. Because um, he does this, he can now stand as David's greater son. But his humanity connects to other strings in the biblical story as well that identify a human royal representative of God. Um, Going all the way back to the garden, uh, there's this Adam-like figure that's going to come, the seed of the woman that will crush the seed of the serpent. Well, for there to be a human offspring of the woman in Jesus to enter into that role, he has to become human, right? So that incarnation is the first step in Christ taking on not only the promises, but also the capacity to function as a human ruler. Uh, Does that make sense how incarnation is vital to Jesus's kingship? All right. I, th- I think it makes sense, um, but incarnation is not where it st- stops. Last week or two weeks ago, something like that, we talked about his baptism, where at his baptism, the Holy Spirit descends like a dove onto Jesus. And in the Roman world, augury, this reading the signs of the activity of birds, was used to confirm the selection of rulers. So Roman rulers wanted hawks or eagles, these birds that um, killed other animals, to be the, the birds that would 
confirm their kingship. Well, Jesus has a dove that confirms his kingship. He'd be a different kind of king. Um, His augural sign, his inauguration, if you can hear those two things together, is a dove, a bird representing peace, not war. Uh, And what's more, God's voice that comes from heaven that declares him as his son, in whom he delights, is an allusion to Psalm 2, where God says, uh, you are my son, today I have begotten you, or today I have become your father. So Jesus is pictured as God's appointed king in fulfillment of this Psalm 2 uh, coronation prophecy. Does that make sense? Okay. Just trying to make sure we're all tracking along the way to see these um, uh, seeds of kingship along the way. And then Jesus' crucifixion um, is an ironic coronation event. Uh, The obvious features that depict Christ's crucifixion as a coronation event are things like the royal garb, including a crown of thorns and a purple robe, um, the charges that were nailed to the cross that identify him as the king of the Jews. We should all be able to pick up on these things as royal imagery. Uh, But there's even more if we dig into the historical background a little bit. And I'm going to quote this guy, Patrick Schreiner, at length because he he summarizes this pretty well. Um, He shows how Jesus' whole crucifixion event takes the shape of something called a Roman triumph. A Roman triumph is a well-known event amply documented in history. It was a parade that functioned to honor and celebrate a victorious Roman general or emperor for his military success. In these parades, a triumphing general had godlike status for a day. So this triumphator, this guy who's like being celebrated, would dress in kingly garb, sometimes purple, have a laurel place on his head, and hold a branch in his right hand. The triumphator would mount a chariot and others would march beside him. Then a bull designated for sacrifice would also be in this procession. And next to that bull would walk a Roman soldier with an axe over his shoulder. This guy was going to sacrifice that bull at the end of this procession. Um, Upon entering the city, he was escorted to the Roman forum. So he'd have these soldiers coming with him, um, a praetorium we might call them. Uh, a whole collection of soldiers coming with him. He'd ride up to the capital, and there this guy would perform rites and make offerings. Um, and, you know, like, things happen in cultures that are hard to explain, but it makes a lot of sense experientially. So if you're a Minnesotan and you're at a meal and there's, like, one of the food items left, no one, you know, you can be offered it and you all say no. You don't want the last thing. And it doesn't make any sense. It's silly, but we just do it. Well, here in this procession, this guy is offered wine and he churns it down. He doesn't drink it, okay? Um, and then uh, the bull is sacrificed. And then the cere- at the end of the ceremony, this guy is elevated above everybody else, sometimes alone, sometimes other individuals would be on either side of them. Um, and then and when evening came, at the end of this parade and celebration and, and sacrificial situation, he's escorted home. People are playing music. It's a joyful uh, triumph. Well, Schreiner goes to show how Jesus' treatment leading up to his crucif- crucifixion um, takes on the form of a Roman triumph. Jesus is led by the soldier inside the palace, the praetorium, Um, This is the Roman military headquarters, but also a word that describes the bodyguard of an emperor that would have been present at the triumph. Um, 
the whole battalion of soldiers would gather in this place. And there these soldiers adorned Jesus with a purple garment and a gra- crown of thorns. So instead of a laurel, it's a crown of thorns. Uh, they mock Jesus as the king of the Jews. They strike him with a reed, a fake scepter, right? They put this in his hand and then they spit on him rather than kissing his feet. And, and they kneel before him in mockery. Then they lead Jesus out. They compel this other guy to carry his cross. Um, that's mirroring this official leading the, um, the bull to be sacrificed along with the instrument of slaughter. They take him to Golgotha, the place of the skull. They offer Jesus wine. He refuses. Then they perform their own ritual sacrifice. Uh, they elevate the triumphator through crucifixion, lifting him up between two robbers, and they place a sign above him that reads, the king of the Jews. People don't praise him. They make fun of him. Um, Darkness covers the land. This is another inaugural type sign showing that something um, big is happening, pretty much. And then to cap it off, a centurion recognizes the Roman triumph at play here. He recognizes this guy who previously has pledged loyalty to Caesar that Jesus is the true son of God. So Caesar always claims to be son of God. This soldier recognizes what's going on here. Um, He recognizes that Jesus is the Son of God. Um, All of this points to Christ's kingly enthronement painted in the garb of a Roman triumph. So what happens at the crucifixion is an ironic kind of coronation where Jesus has a crown of thorns and he's elevated as the king. So do you see how kingship makes another appearance in Jesus's life? Then when we come to the resurrection, um, this act of resurrection is an enthronement event that positions him as Lord over death. So he challenges death's reign, he emerges victorious, and he ushers in a kingdom of light. Um, This full significance of Christ's resurrection, we, we just cannot state this strongly enough. The resurrection is what makes Jesus not only king over Israel, but also king over the world, king over sin and death. Um, We'll see this in a moment, but in Romans 1, 3, and 4, Paul distinguishes between two uh, sources of royal identity. One is through Jesus's human lineage. This is how he can be the greater son of David. The other is through his resurrection by the Holy Spirit. Um, This is what makes him king over the world. By his resurrection from the dead, through the Holy Spirit, Jesus is appointed as the powerful Son of God, the Son of Psalm 2, who would rule over all other kings and all other nations. Um, Through and through, Jesus' kingly identity is brought about in the resurrection. Now, the fact that Jesus is king of the world and not just of Israel is a really big deal because it means that Jesus' domain extends across the globe and that all people are invited into his kingdom. So one guy puts it this way. By being crowned king at his resurrection, Jesus stepped into a lordship that is larger than the roots from which he came. He is, as he was accused of being at his death, king of the Jews, but he is also, through his resurrection, crowned king of the Gentiles as well. In the name of our church, resurrection depicts our greatest hope, in the foundation and the foundation of our faith. Um, We will be raised from the dead just as Christ was raised from the dead, but our name also testifies to the reality that Jesus, the Messiah, is the king of the world. And for that reason, when we talk about being a Christian or being a church, we can't talk about our Christian faith in merely personal or private terms. 
Um, our being a Christian is not just a matter of me and God or me and Jesus. You know, this is a side note here, but this is one of those reasons that I just detest that song, I Walk Through the Garden Alone. I know a lot of people love it. Um, but when it's like, he walks with me and he talks with me and he tells me I am his own, it sort of depicts this picture of Christianity that's super private, like it's me and Jesus hiding away in a garden somewhere. And that's not the picture at all that uh, the New Testament authors give us. Instead, it's a public reality that Jesus is king, not just of me personally, but of all things on heaven and on earth and on under the earth, as we'll see in the next section. So if the resurrection isn't proof enough of Jesus's kingship, the ascension really brings it all home. Um, the, the New Testament authors depict Jesus's ascension as an enthronement. So it's almost like there's an official ironic coronation that precedes his active rule. Well, his active rule takes place at the ascension. Um, he begins his rule as a cosmic king. Now, I'm going to give one line of evidence that maybe won't be convincing, and then I'll give one that is, I think, incontrovertible. Um, In Luke, well, in Acts, Luke is the author, Luke demonstrates that Jesus' kingship defied expectations by setting his ascension immediately following the disciples' query about when when Jesus would restore the kingdom to Israel. So in Acts 1-6, disciples say, Jesus, is this the time that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He says, it's not for you to know when these things are going to take place. And then he gives them a mission to be witnesses to his kingship, and then he ascends to heaven. So essentially he's saying, um, you have vice regency. In the same way that God gave Adam this vice regency in the garden, I'm giving you a vice regency in the way you're going to demonstrate my rule. The way you're going to represent me is by being a witness to me and what I have accomplished and to who I am. So the way that the disciples will represent Christ's royal rule will be through witness. And all Christians are called to take up that calling, to be a witness to the kingship of Jesus. What's more, it's through the witness of believers in the Passover-like death of Jesus that the evil powers presently deceiving the world will be defeated. That's what Revelation 12, or 7 through 12, teaches us. It's by the blood of the Lamb and the testimony of the witnesses that the dragon will be defeated. So Jesus conquers through his blood and the testimony of his followers. Um, so you might think, well, I don't, I don't like that because maybe I wanted to see Um, Jesus telling the disciples, I will set up a kingdom in Israel really, really soon, and the way that I'm going to do it is through raising up an army in Israel and conquering Rome. You know, I think that's what Jesus's original listeners would have wanted. You know, there have been revolts and riots previously saying, we need to overthrow Rome, we need to set up our kingship once again, we need to restore the kingdom to Israel, and we'll do that through force. Well, Luke doesn't permit that in the way he describes Uh, Jesus's answer. Instead, it will be through witness, through gospelization, through evangelization. Uh, But Paul makes it really clear that Jesus is is reigning and ruling now in Ephesians. Um, Here, the resurrection operates in tandem with the ascension. I'll read you a line from Ephesians 1, 20 to 21. God exercised this power in Christ by raising him from the dead and seating him at his right hand in the heavens, far above every ruler and authority, 
power, and dominion, and every title given, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Paul makes clear that at his ascension, Jesus begins to reign as king over every other ruler, and that his kingdom or his dominion is superior to all others. What's more, Jesus' kingship is not merely a future reality, it's a present one. Notice in that verse that, that Christ is ruling and reign, reigning in this age. That's significant, even more significant, this reign will never end. It will extend into the age to come. And eventually, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I, I want to add one note to this. If you kept reading in Ephesians, getting past verses 20 and 21 of chapter 1, uh, the, the um, kingdom of Christ is described, and that is the church, his body. So it's like Christ is the king, had, the church is his kingdom, body. Uh, that, that's the way that Christ's rule fundamentally takes shape on the earth, is through his people, his body, the church, obeying him, embodying his kingdom values. So the gospel declares that Jesus is king in the present, giving people an opportunity to pledge their allegiance to him in the present as well. So in other words, Christians announce Jesus' kingship and call all people to respond with loyalty, the obedience of faith. That's what Paul calls it in Romans 1. He, he, right after he talks about this descendant of David who's been raised in power as the Son of God, um, he says that he's been sent to declare this message to bring about the obedience of faith among the Gentiles. That's the appropriate response to the announcement of Jesus' kingship. As we've already seen, Jesus will return as the cosmic king ruling over all the world. Um, everyone will recognize Jesus as the king of kings and lord of lords. And, and I'd suggest that a lot of the Old Testament and in very much of the New Testament, is anticipating that day when Christ's reign will be undeniable. Right now, people deny Christ's reign. People um, butt up against it. They try to replace Christ as king. But um, we need to declare Christ's kingship, echoing the warning of Psalm 2. So now, kings, be wise. Receive instruction, you judges of the earth. Serve Yahweh with reverential awe and rejoice with trembling. Pay homage to the sun, or he will be angry, and you will perish in your rebellion, for his anger may ignite at any moment. But all who take refuge in him are happy. I mean, that, that is like the response that people ought to have to the gospel. Pay homage to the sun of the obedience of faith. Any, any questions or comments up to this point before we transition? I, I don't think that it could be more clear in the New Testament and in the prophecies of the Old Testament, that Jesus, as the Messiah, is fundamentally God's appointed king. He's his ruler. So when we talk about responding to the gospel, um, we need to um, think in terms of responding to the kingship of Christ, submitting to his rule, entering into his kingdom. Uh, that's fundamentally the language that we should have. And we'll talk about this more when we get into the benefits of the gospel. I, I want to suggest, and I'll, I'll make an argument next week, I think it's better for us to say, um, when you come to faith in Christ, when you, when you come to receive Christ as your king, um, the, the first thing that happens in the primary assurance that you have is that you've entered into his kingdom. 
you've entered into his peace, his shalom. You've entered into his rule, and you learn to walk in the ways of his kingdom. Um, I think talking about salvation and response to Christ in that way is way better than um, pray a prayer and ask Jesus in your heart so that you won't go to hell when you die. Now, there are aspects of that that we should think about, um, but that's not the language that the biblical authors use. Um, They use this language of responding to the announcement of Jesus' kingship. One way that we do that is through baptism. This is why we Baptists would say that you should get baptized after you have come to faith. Um, Back in the ancient world, in the Roman world, these armies, uh, there, there would be soldiers who would have to take a pledge of allegiance to their centurion. And they called this a sacramentum. That's why um, Christians for a long time have referred to baptism as a sacrament, the pledge of allegiance to King Jesus. Um, It's giving yourself over to him. Uh, So we want to include baptism as part of the response to the gospel, um, where you commit yourself, you pledge yourself to King Jesus. All right, Um, I want to transition here by reading you the lines from a fourth century hymn called God, We Praise You. Uh, This connects the enthronement of Christ that we've just observed with the meaning of the cross that we'll consider below. And and you'll hear echoes of this song in some of the songs that we sing. Um, Thou art the King of glory, O Christ. Thou art the everlasting Son of the Father. And here's some old language, but I didn't want to clean it up for us. I just used what they have. When thou tookest upon thee to deliver man, Thou didst not abhor the virgin's womb. So the conquering king comes through the virgin's womb. When thou hadst overcome the sharpness of death, thou didst open the kingdom of heaven to all believers. Again, kingly, royal language. Thou sittest at the right hand of God in the glory of the Father. We believe that thou shalt come to be our judge. We therefore pray thee, help thy servants, whom thou hast redeemed with thy precious blood. So it brings together the events of Christ's life, particularly his crucifixion, with his kingship. So that leads us to consider the meaning of the cross. It's hard to talk about the meaning of an event, isn't it? What does an event mean? Um, Events take on more meaning based on what happens after those events. So if you've ever, in your history books, read about the shot that was heard around the world, well, that we can talk about that shot in that way and assign it that kind of meaning because of everything else that happened around it. So, you know, it wasn't just a guy who shot a bullet out of his gun. You know, it could mean, you know, there was an accidental misfire. You know, maybe that's the meaning of that moment. But that moment takes on greater meaning as other events happen around it. And the same is true when we consider the cross. When we consider what Jesus did on the cross, in light of everything that came before it and everything that's happened after, after it, it has what we might call a multivalent or polyvalent meaning. It, it means many things. So it's not helpful for us to say that there's one meaning of the cross. Instead, we want to grab onto the many meanings of the cross. Uh, there's an error that some theologians in particular have tried to make where they say that the cross means one thing exclusively and any other meanings are wrong. Um, that, that's not helpful because the cross is multivalent, polyvalent. The way that this debate takes shape is in terms of theories of the atonement. So if you've ever picked up a systematic theology textbook, there's a whole chapter on it 
probably titled Theories of the Atonement. This, this is kind of a I don't like that language because when we talk about theories of the atonement, it's almost like we're hypothesizing about what the atonement, Christ's death on the cross, might mean. And here's one theory and there's another theory, and we just need to pick one of the theories and make that the theory that's the right theory. Well, I'm trying to say that it might be better for us to talk about pictures of the atonement instead of theories of the atonement. And what's more, it might be good for us to envision an art gallery where there are multiple pictures of the atonement, pictures of what Christ did on the cross, and when we bring them together, it actually communicates something bigger than one individual picture could communicate by itself. Um, I, I went to this thing called the Van Gogh Experience where they had all of these Van Gogh pictures like being projected on the wall and moving and changing. And by bringing these pictures together, they were able to show a meaning bigger than any individual painting could have done. That's what these pictures of atonement do. They help us understand the fuller scope of the meaning of the cross. So we shouldn't reject some because they're highlighting um, maybe more minute aspects of the meaning of the cross. And we shouldn't try to make one uh, the the only one that we talk about. Um, So what I've tried to do here is to identify what I think could be the central three. Like if we were going to put all the pictures of the atonement on a wall, uh, these three would be in the center and the rest would find their relationship uh, to each other in these three pictures. Um, The pictures of redemption, um, substitution, and victory. I want to start with redemption because this is the picture that goes back the furthest. The New Testament authors carry forward the Old Testament language of redemption, picturing Christ's cross work as a new and greater exodus. Instead of redemption of Israel from slavery to Egypt, the work of Christ on the cross brought about redemption of all who come to him from slavery to sin and death. But even in this perspective, there's a twofold freedom in view. There's a twofold redemption that happens. Freedom from the wrath of God and freedom from slavery to sin. So you'll have to hang with me as I draw these out. If we looked at the pictures of the cross, the the message of uh, Jesus' crucifixion and the account of the Exodus event, we'd see parallels between Israel's redemption from Egypt and humanity's redemption from sin and death. Just as the blood of a lamb applied to the doorposts of the home protected a family from the destroyer, who was God himself, so too does the blood of Jesus Christ, often referred to as the Lamb of God, protect individuals from the wrath of God. God the destroyer became God the protector because of the blood of the lamb. This redemptive activity is then recapitulated by Christ on the cross. I think sometime I need to do a Bible class where I teach through the Passover account because Passover is a really bad translation. It's not helpful for us to talk about the Passover. It's better talked about as the cover over, um, where God covers the home of the people with his presence to keep the destroyer from coming in. So, So Passover makes it seem like God hops over the house or something like that. That's not the case. Um, The the actual verbiage involved is God protecting um, the entry of the home from the destroyer coming in. So maybe someday we can get into that. But I think that's a picture at play in both what we call the Passover and in the cross of Christ, where God himself defends the people who've been covered by the blood of the lamb from the wrath of the destroyer. Um, 
the Israelites then were called to the obedience of faith. They had to trust that God would be true to his word, both that he would be true to destroy those who failed to comply with the Passover instructions, and that he would be true to save those who did rely on the blood of the Lamb. The same is true for all humanity in light of the cross. Christ, our Passover Lamb, calls us to the obedience of faith as well. Now, I want to notice, you to notice, though, that those who are saved by the blood of the Lamb were saved not only from God's wrath and destruction, but also from slavery to Egypt. Um, this death of the firstborn was the final, the, the straw that broke the camel's back, so to speak. After this devastating event, Pharaoh let Israel go. He let them go, free from slavery. Of course, he was very quick to change his mind, and God acted redemptively again as he crushed Pharaoh's armies. Um, So even here, as we get into other pictures, you'll start to see substitution and victory as well. Um, The primary picture, though, is one of redemption, um, colored in with salvation from God's wrath and God's military victory. As a result, Israel takes on a new identity, the people that God had redeemed. They're his people, a holy priesthood, right? Um, On the cross, Jesus defeated the powers of death and darkness in order to bring about the redemption of mankind. One aspect of redemption from the power of sin and death is the forgiveness of our participation in in sin and death. And we can't truly be free from sin and death unless we've been pardoned for the sins we've committed. So isn't that interesting how redemption from the power of sin and death necessitates forgiveness of our participation in those activities? That's why we need substitution, as we'll find later on. Um, Another term that communicates the redemptive aspect of Jesus' cross work is ransom. In fact, Jesus explains that his mission on earth was to serve others and give himself as a ransom for many. Um, The Apostle Peter utilizes this terminology to emphasize how valuable Christ's blood was. Christ did not purchase his people with money, but with his own blood. Money um, loses its value to inflation. Silver and gold Um, you know, in the language of 1 Peter, erode over time, but Christ's blood never does. It's valuable. These terms are pretty much interchangeable, redemption and ransom. We can see that in the way that two different translations translate 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19. The ESV says, you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Uh, spot. I, I think the CSB maybe is a little bit more helpful. You were redeemed from your empty way of life. I, either way, you see that ransom and redemption are the same concept. In these verses, we see that Christ, the Passover lamb, brings about the redemption of his people. But you can probably also detect a question that has arisen over the course of church history. If Christ's blood is a ransom or a payment for our sin, To whom is that payment made? And different suggestions have been offered. Some people have suggested that Jesus paid the price to God for our redemption. But if we're in bondage to sin and death, others have suggested that Jesus paid a ransom price to the devil, to Satan, to free us from his power. So it's as if God made a deal with the devil, and of course God would have won out in the end through the resurrection. But I want to suggest that These suggestions also, you know, same with many other 
investigations of pictures of the atonement, I think these investigations fail to recognize that this is an analogy for what happens. It's a way of teaching and explaining what Christ's cross means. We shouldn't exploit the picture for everything we can grab out of it. Instead, we need to just understand it's a picture that explains an aspect of the meaning of the cross. We don't have to try to make it explain everything. Um, We've all used analogies, and people have, like, pressed our analogy too far and gone somewhere we didn't want that analogy to go. We should not press the analogies of the atonement too far and land somewhere uh, where they were never intended to take us. That's what happens when people try to make this picture, ask questions like, well, who did, they, who did Jesus pay the price to? Well, think back to the original redemption of Israel from Egypt. Was, was there a ransom pi- price paid to anyone? No, it's not. It's just a helpful picture for explaining what happened. Um, so this is why it's not so helpful when you're trying to explain the gospel to children to say, God redeemed you. And that's like when there was a boy who had a boat and he was playing with it and it, it, it went down the river and he lost it. But then one day he was in the, the toy store and he saw his boat for sale. So he paid the price to get his boat back to this person who was pawning the boat. You know, that's not helpful because it presses the analogy too far. Um, we, we should avoid those sorts of things. All right, does that make sense what I'm trying to say there? All right. Yes, Julie. I'd say if it takes you beyond where the biblical authors press the analogy, then we've gone too far. If we had a single verse that said, um, Jesus offered his blood to Satan for the redemption of his people, then we could take that analogy that far. But we have nothing in the New Testament that would give us that impression. So I'd I'd say we should just exercise restraint. We don't want to be complete minimalists as we utilize these pictures, but we don't want to be maximalists either. We don't want to exploit them. Yeah, there's no rule for it. It's like literature, interpreting people's works or looking at paintings. Um, You can exploit it beyond what it should be. We don't want to do that. Yeah. Yeah, we're, we're about to get into that. I think um, substitutionary atonement, often referred to as penal substitutionary atonement, where Jesus takes the wrath of God on our behalf, that's a different picture than um, redemption. Not holistically, because we can think of the Passover lamb um, as a sacrifice, but that lamb di- didn't so much absorb God's wrath, you know, as Christ does in this other picture. So I think we should keep them separate so that they can speak distinctly. That's what we turn to now. The next picture is that of a substitutionary sacrifice that bears the penalty for human sin. So in this picture, Christ takes the place of a sinner and bears the punishment for sin. As I already mentioned, this is usually referred to as penal substitutionary atonement. Or if you're reading a work of systematic theology and you start seeing PSA showing up everywhere, those are just the initial, you know, just standing for penal substitutionary atonement. Um, It's a mouthful. I'm just going to say substitutionary atonement. Uh, Once again, the Exodus narrative can function as a corresponding Old Testament event, but as I already mentioned, that Passover lamb didn't really bear the penalty for sin, even though it does die to secure the life of another. 
Um, the pattern of substitutionary atoning sacrifice is set, rather, in Leviticus 16 in the instructions for the Day of Atonement. On that day, two goats would be selected. One goat would be sacrificed as a sin offering. So this goat would actually die, and it's almost symbolizing bearing the penalty of sin. Um, But then the other goat would play a different role. For this other goat, the priest would symbolically transfer Israel's sin and iniquity onto the goat, and then this goat would be led out into the wilderness to carry away all of Israel's sin. So these two goats function in different ways. One in a sense, bears the penalty for sin, and then the other goat um, expels sin. It takes sin away from the sinner. So one um, bears the penalty, one removes sin. You see how these two goats function in different ways. Um, Well, Jesus does both things. He not only propitiates for sin, takes a penalty, but he also expiates sin. He takes it away. He cleanses the people who come to him. Now, the Old Testament prophets made clear that God would send his servant as a substitutionary sacrifice. Um, It is popular these days among theologians to say that substitutionary atonement is not real. It's not true. We shouldn't talk about it in this way. That that is misguided. I understand why there's a de-emphasis on this. And I think maybe on some level there needs to be a better way of talking about it, the way I'm trying to model here. Um, But we can't just say substitutionary atonement isn't a thing. Um, It's important, and it's depicted over and over again in Scripture, in Isaiah 53, Galatians 3.13, 1 Peter 2.24, Romans 8.3. Over and over again, Jesus is depicted as a substitutionary sacrifice bearing God's wrath on our behalf. Now, this is, I'm about to explain why some people want to jettison this theory of the atonement or picture of the atonement. Um, Unfortunately, the picture of penal substitutionary atonement has been overstated, poorly explained, or even misunderstood altogether. What's more, some theologians have tried to make this picture of the atonement an exclusive singular picture of atonement instead of allowing it to function as one among many. And you'll hear this even in the way that many of you maybe would talk about what the gospel is and what Jesus did on the cross. I think the first line that we'd run to is Jesus bore God's wrath for you as a substitutionary atonement. Well, that's not the only thing that happened there, and we need to be clear about that without losing it. Well, some theologians are wanting to do away with it because of the way it's been abused or misunderstood. Some of the worst explanations twist this picture to show God exercising divine child abuse. In this picture, God the raging father is shown to inflict suffering on his unwilling son. But that's not what substitutionary atonement is. Um, There there are systematic theologies that talk about it in this way. Uh, Wayne Grudem's systematic theology, for instance, talks about the rage of God um, being poured out on his son, almost in a way that defies anything the biblical authors talk about. Um, There are some songs that, um, you know, there was one song we were going to sing last week, and as we were looking at at the line, it's like mostly right, but miscommunicates on this point. So we didn't, we ended up not singing it. But, But the point is that this view is wrong because it fails to take into consideration that God does not delight in the death of the wicked. I think some presentations of the gospel make it sound like God is pleased, happy, for the wicked to bear punishment for sin. 
Well, the Old Testament teaches us that God does not delight in that. Um, but some of the poetic renderings of what happened on the cross make it seem like God is gleeful to pour out wrath and rage. That's not the case. Two, it's not helpful because it doesn't take into consideration that God has orchestrated redemption through Christ because he desires all to come to salvation. Um, there's a salvific intention behind all of this, and Christ willingly participates in it. Sometimes we overly separate the, the being of God and say that Jesus and, and God the Father are completely separate. Well, they share in essence. So this idea of a, a cruel father sending his unwilling son on the cross um, heartlessly is not in the Bible. God is a unified Trinitarian being. So what Jesus experiences, in some sense, we can say the entire Trinity experiences. The essence of God is always united, even as we distinguish um, what they carry out in their roles of redemption. Another distortion of penal substitutionary atonement is to conceive of it in mere transactional terms. This is another problem, as if simply a person's debt is transferred from one bank account to another. Well, this is a really sterile articulation of the doctrine of substitutionary atonement, and it leads to all kinds of distortions in Christianity. All you need to do is pray this prayer, and all your guilt is transferred to Jesus, and you're good, man. Like, huzzah. That's it. That's what it means to be a Christian. That's, that's not the biblical picture. And by isolating one picture of the atonement to that end distorts the gospel. All right, finally, in our last uh, few minutes here, victory. Another picture of the cross is that of victory over sin and death. Um, this picture is often referred to as Christus Victor, the victory of Christ. Um, it facilitates the redemption of God's people and itself is made possible by the picture of substitutionary atonement. So we could say that whereas substitutionary atonement secures forgiveness, um, victory secures freedom, and both of these contribute to the reality of our redemption, our transfer from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of God's Son. Uh, we could arrange these pictures in many ways and, and emphasize different things, but that might be a helpful one. In Christ's crosswork, Jesus frees people from the power of death and the devil. In his victory, he establishes salvation and power attendant to his kingdom, triumphing over Satan with his blood. I mean, interestingly enough, the imagery of Revelation 12 corresponds to the promise of Genesis 3.15, where the seed of the woman, ultimately Christ, would be victorious over the seed of the serpent, this dragon in Revelation 12. Um, Jesus enters into death itself and emerges triumphant, defeating death and sin. And this has implications not just for our personal relationship with God, but socially and cosmically. Uh, the, the new creation is possible through the victory of Christ. Quick side note, even though we're running out of time. I think it's significant that Jesus is the first body that the earth grew into a better body. Um, Paul uses the analogy of a seed going into a ground to talk about the resurrection. Well, when Cain died, when the first human died, they planted him in the ground, and a better human didn't come out of the ground. That doesn't happen until Jesus comes, because the ground is cursed. The God, God's um, life-giving work is um, attenuated. Well, in Christ's defeat of the power in, of sin and death, uh, there's a seed-like metaphor that we can draw on where the ground produces the first glorified person. Jesus. Um, Jesus' cross work then is an essential aspect of his kingdom. 
Um, here's a quote that I think might be helpful. The fathers of the early church championed the kingship of Christ in all things, especially his atoning death on the cross. Um, Justin Martyr promoted the mantra, the Lord hath reigned from the tree. Irenaeus says, he whom the Jews had seen as a man and had fastened to the cross should be preached as Christ, the Son of God, their eternal king. Uh, the widespread understanding of Jesus as the immortal king who has suffered on our behalf is exemplified in early artistic portrayals in the crucifixion, um, placing on Jesus' head a golden crown. Uh, Jesus' cross work confirms his kingship and his victory as the king in a surprising way. Not through grasping, not through insurrection, not through force, but through self-giving and sacrifice. As this guy, John Stott, explains, while Jesus was crushed by the ruthless power of Rome, he was himself crushing the serpent's head. The victim was the victor, and the cross is still the throne from which he rules the world. Obviously, that line is a little poetic because Jesus isn't still on the cross, but the point is that that's his coronation event. So what I've been trying to show is that Jesus is the king and that his kingship is interconnected with the cross, even though it's only one of the multiple pictures of the atonement, of the meaning of the cross. And I think we need all of them. And when we talk about the gospel, when we share the gospel, I think we should draw on all three of these pictures. Um, we, we need all of them and more. There are other pictures that you would find in the New Testament. But we have just a minute for any questions or follow-up before we end. Mel? Or Dan? We'll go you first. Yeah, again, there's another parable that's a picture that we can't press too far because someone could wrongly grab onto that parable and say, well, there's this master that has to get the money. Well, Jesus says, no, you're forgiven of your sin and too much, you know, whoever's been forgiven much, I forget all the details, but yeah, we can't press those too far. Yeah, I, I think when we look at Jesus, we don't want to undervalue that Jesus did give up something. It's not that there's this fictional debt that was on a ledger, a real debt, and it was erased. It's just forensic. It's just a legal fiction. Something real happened. Sure. Yeah. Well, it's, yeah, they, that's, you would always nail the charges of the criminal to the cross, and that was the charge against him. So it's an ironic thing, you know, and the, they, people wanted that to be taken off. You know, we have no king, king but Caesar. But, yeah, it's nailed to the cross. And Paul uses that picture in uh, Colossians, I believe, where he talks about our debt being nailed to the cross. The charges against us, Christ bears, right, in our place. All right, we're out of time. Um, I'm always happy to talk more about this, uh, but you're, you're certainly dismissed at this point.